Morning. Morning Morning to those of you watching online as well. As you all know, this uh, Monday, tomorrow is Memorial Day. What is Memorial Day? You all know this, hopefully. It's an opportunity for uh, us in this country to take a moment, take a day, to um, honor uh, the men and women whose lives have been lost um, over the generations in this country, which uh, continues to happen. So let's take just a minute, and uh, if you'll join me in a word of prayer uh, this morning. God and Father, you who created us, who sustain us, who call us to live in peace, hear our prayer for all of those who've given their lives in service to this country, whose hearts and hopes are known to you alone. Hear our prayer this day for our country and the lives you've given to each of us. May our lives matter by loving and serving others as you have loved and served us. We pray for your mercy in our lives, for our church, for our country, in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 This is, if you've been with us for some weeks, the final message, seven weeks in this series called Questions of Faith. Questions of Faith. And we've just been asking questions, you know, certainly not exhaustive, but questions that I feel um, people both you know, let's say outside of a relationship with God, outside of a relationship with Christ might be asking, but as I've said time, many times in this series, I think the questions that many of us inside the church, we have some of the same questions, maybe at a different level, maybe in a different way, but a lot of the same questions. That's the purpose of this series. We're gonna end with what I think is really the most important question. Maybe we could have begun with this, and that is, how can I know God, right? You know, and I mean really know him, okay? Not know about him, But how does one know God? You might say it's the most important question. All other questions, not only the ones we've we've looked at, but the ones we haven't looked at, really rest on this question. Can God be known? I mean, personally known, like you know your, you know, your, your wife, your husband, your children. I mean, somebody in that way. Can God really be known? And this is really uh, uh, the fundamental question. Every other question rests on this question. If God cannot be known in a personal way, then um, really there's really no point to the Christian faith. Think about it. No point really being here this morning. But if he can be known, and I don't mean like you know him, you know, like you, it's, it's, it's a weekend, right? But I mean over the course, think about how hard it is to get to know one person. Those of you who are married. I mean, you've been married 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and people say, I never knew this about you. This is one person you spend your whole life with. We're talking about the, the infinite God, okay? It's a, it's a lifelong relationship, but if God can be known, right, there would be no greater purpose in life, no greater pursuit in life than to gain more of this knowledge and to deepen this relationship. So that's what I want to talk about as we conclude this series. Enter this discussion, enter this question where you need to enter it, maybe. It's another way of saying it this morning. How can I know God? Familiar passage, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Follow along as I read. At that time, Jesus said, he's talking to his disciples, we hear, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. 
All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. How can I know God? First thing this passage tells us is it's a personal knowledge. Okay? It's a personal knowledge, knowing God. One of the high, what's highlighted in, in this passage, one of the great ironies, think, think about this, just in this first little paragraph, verse 25 and, and 26. One of the, this little first paragraph highlights one of the greatest ironies, certainly in the New Testament, um, as it concerns this question, how one knows God, and it's this. Those who you would most expect would recognize Jesus and warmly receive him, they don't. Who am I talking about? The religious people, or even the Jewish people, right? The people who had spent a millennia, you know, Reading the scriptures, Jesus is, according to Luke 24, you know, he's the fulfillment of all the scriptures. He's the cover of the puzzle box. If you had been spending your whole life going to synagogue, doing worship, right? Now, Gentile people perhaps weren't doing that. You know, the quote-unquote sinners and tax collectors, they weren't doing that. But there were groups of people. Okay? It's unique to human history. Prior to Jesus Christ, there wasn't one monotheistic religion, really, and that was Judaism. It's big. It's still going on. Israel, I mean, we know this story. They were looking at this, and if the one people that would have expected to recognize him, and of course some did, Apostle Paul, I mean, there's some, there's some people that did, but on the whole, if you read the New Testament carefully, the people who should have got it, the people who should have said, he's here, this makes sense, we told you this was going to happen, wow, welcome, Messiah, all of these hundreds of prophecies those who knew their Old Testament could say, he's here. They didn't on the whole get it, right? This is an irony. And those who shouldn't have got it, who weren't allowed to go to church, who weren't allowed to go to synagogue, who had no business, we know them in the New Testament if you read it, you know, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, you know, the people on the margins, they got it in great number, okay? So it's a personal knowledge. Those who should have got it did. Even in the verses we didn't read, little context here, just the four verses, verses 20 through 24, five verses that lead up to when Jesus says, at that time. This is a prayer, by the way. And it's one of the only prayers, of the, I should say the first prayers of Jesus, at least in the New Testament. And it's, you, you and I think it's common that Jesus says he addresses uh, God as Father, but you don't see that in the Old Testament. Never by an individual, okay? This is very unique. There's something being done here. Jesus is not just our savior. He's our model. You've heard that before. He is the, he's the first among uh, uh, many. He's, he's, we are supposed to not only benefit from his salvation, but we are supposed to see in ourselves what it means to have a relationship with God. And Jesus is modeling it here in this prayer, but he's doing that in response to what just happened. That's why he says, you know, Father, I, I, I praise you. I don't know what would be a good analogy. Like, you know, you walk into a party or you give a speech and nobody liked it and then you say to your wife or your husband after you go, you know, I kind of knew it was going to go that way. 
And it's okay because they don't get it. That's kind of almost what Jesus is saying here. He's responding. What is he responding to? I'm going to read. I didn't print it up here. Listen, verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of the miracles had been performed because they did not repent. So just prior to this beautiful, intimate prayer, come unto me, etc., Jesus had gone through the towns. He even mentions them. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, Capernaum, all of these towns, if you took a map out, they're all around the Sea of Galilee. That's where the 12 disciples came from. It was ground zero for devout followers, not politically compromised followers. Think of Jerusalem. Devout followers, all of Jesus' 12 disciples came from there on purpose. It was sort of the, the purists were there. And Jesus did a lot of his ministry, if you remember the, the Gospels, up there. He eventually migrates down to Jerusalem, and they uh, don't like him, and they crucify him. But a lot of his ministry is done here. This was, this was ground zero for Orthodox Judaism in a good way. But Jesus says something that is a gut punch. He denounced the towns. The towns he denounces, I just mentioned them, are all um, Jewish towns. Even the one Capernaum, Capernaum, where Jesus had done much of his ministry, where Jesus, it was kind of where he, he you know, he, he moved away from home in Nazareth, and he grew up in Capernaum. He spent his time there. If you read carefully the Gospels, virtually everybody in Capernaum knew who he was. Virtually everybody who had anything from, you know, stage four cancer to, you know, something, a toothache, they were healed by Jesus, okay? But it says that they did not repent, and then he goes on to say something that was truly, for us, it kind of, we might miss it, but it's a huge uh, uh, a punch to the gut in a minute. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Zidon, verse 22, on the day of judgment than you. Tyre and Zidon were towns that were not far from there, but Tyre and Zidon were the other side of the world. Tyre and Zidon were people who were not Jewish, who hated Jewish. There was a lot of antipathy. They were, they were dirty, rotten sinners. And he said, listen, if I would have done the miracles that I did there, if I would have preached and showed up to Tyre and Zidon, they would have received it. And he even says in the verses, just to go back to the Old Testament, if the miracles that were performed here in Capernaum, in Chorazin, in Bethsaida, had been performed in Sodom, everyone that was a Jew knew the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even we know it. I mean, those of us who never been to church, you know, I mean, that's how old, that's how powerful the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is, okay? He said, even if they would have heard it, that city would have remained till today. That city would not have been destroyed. So, back to my point. Can God really be known? I'm asking you the question, where do you need to enter that question? Because you think the people in, in Bethsaida, in Capernaum, in Chorazin, they didn't know their Bible. They didn't know the reference to Sodom. Of course they knew a lot of the details. But it didn't change their life because it's a personal knowledge. When it came down, Jesus said, listen, I'll feed the 5,000. I'll give you some food. I'll heal some people. But that's not really why I came. I came for a different reason. I came to solve a different problem. It has to do with healing and forgiving your sin. Are you interested? And they said, not so much. He said, if I would have given this message in Tyre and Sidon, if I would have given this message a 1,000 years ago in Sodom, they would have repented. It's a personal 
knowledge. Okay? That's why he says, Lord of heaven, Father of heaven and earth, I know I, feel, I seem like I'm an unsuccessful Messiah so far, but you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. Now when he says you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned, he's talking about religious wisdom in a sense. The people who were wised and learned, you know, the people who went to Harvard 2,000 years ago, they were religious leaders. He's saying, you've hidden these things from them. But you have revealed them, now watch this, unto little children. But what's he talking about? He says little children. He's talking about little kids, right? It's, a, it's an image. It's for people who are dependent. If you're a note taker, Matthew chapter 18, the disciples say to Jesus, you know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's amazing that God puts up with any of us, right? The 12 disciples, this is what they want to know. Jesus is healing, he's preaching, he's doing all this great stuff for people, he's talking about the kingdom of God, and this is what they want to know. What's the pecking order in heaven? If we're going to follow you, this is what they say. This is no joke, but Matthew 18. Are we going to be able to sit on your right hand and on your left in the kingdom of heaven? And you know what Jesus says to them? I didn't print it, but I'm paraphrasing, or I'm reading it. Truly I tell you, Matthew 18, 3, unless you change and become like little children, now he doesn't mean be childish, he doesn't mean morph into a child. He's saying unless you change your heart and become like little children, what does it mean? Dependent, not a know-it-all, be willing to surrender your pride, think you know everything, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Okay? It's a personal knowledge, and this personal knowledge, it's one we are invited into, but it's only by revelation. Okay? Watch what he says. And notice all the, the, the father and son metaphors or, or, or images, I shouldn't say metaphors, the, the, the words are used five times. It's a relationship. Father and son, father and son, father and son. And then he said, listen. You've hidden these things from the wise and learned, I circled this, and revealed them to little children. There's people who are not know-it-alls. And then the end of verse 28, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and those to whom the Son chooses, wait for it, to reveal. Say, I'm not saying put, you know, check your intellect, put your head in the sand. Of course not. Coming to know God does require your intellect, but that's, it's, it's not a connecting of the dots. It's not a math problem. It's a revelation. What do I mean by that? All like the best we can understand when we say God, the Father, the Son reveals the Father to people is he, God speaks in some way to your heart. That's all I can tell you. I mean, there's many, many verses, but that's what it is fundamentally, I can't tell you why. I can't see pride in your life. I can't see pride in my life. There's things that you and I cannot see, but what I see when I look at the scriptures, when I think about my testimony and testimonies of other people, here's what, how God is known. He reveals himself in a way to the human heart, and either you receive it or you don't. That's what he's saying. Do you have a personal relationship with God? The fundamental principle of divine revelation is that it comes to those who are open to it. Are you open to it? It's not just for non-Christians becoming Christians. It's for Christians. I mean, don't raise your hand if you're a Christian here and you've got issues and problems and challenges and, and frustrations with God and with life. Okay? The fundamental principle of divine revelation is that it comes to those who are open to it. But it finds no response to those who think they know better 
I mean, it's amazing to me. People come up to issues about, you know, whatever it could be. It could be, you know, difficulties, this, sexuality. All these issues come up and people all of a sudden are smarter than God. It blows my mind. I'm not, I'm not, I don't come anymore because I found something that I don't agree with. Right? It's a revelation. You have to become like a child. If you're open to it, but it finds no response to those who think they know better or who are not looking really to know God personally or what God really wants to say to you, but they're looking to employ God or attach him to their cause. That's what they're looking for. Think about your friends. Think about your life. Last Sunday, like many of you, I, I went to a graduation party. And there's all kinds of graduation parties happening this season. And um, this was a nephew, but it's my stepsisters. You know, I have stepbrothers and sisters. And so I went to this graduation party. At this party was my, one of my stepbrothers, who's married to my stepsister, following this, okay. And so in other words, I, I see him, but maybe once or twice a year, okay. He's married to my stepsister. But he said to me, hey, we some small talk at this party. He said, my um, sister um, is in the hospital, maybe in, near the end of her life. He said, I, this sounds, you know, I don't know if you're, this is your cup of tea, but you know, w- would you mind visiting her? Do you do that kind of thing? He knows I'm a pastor. I was touched by it. Because I thought, wow, I don't really have much of a relationship with my um, stepsister's husband. You know, we're not that close. I haven't, and I said, sure, I'll do it. I thought, well, it was just a great opportunity to connect with him. So I go there last Tuesday. This woman doesn't know me from the man on the moon, right? And I don't even know if he told her I was coming. So I come, I sit down. She was actually doing a little better. We had a real conversation and she finally puts the piece together. Oh, you're, you know, so-and-so's married, and, and she fits who I am. And then she says, so you're a pastor. I hadn't told her that, so she must have got some heads up. I said, yes, I am. And she goes, can I ask you a question? And I'm thinking, this is great. I'm here. She doesn't know me. She's on her deathbed. This is, this is why I'm alive. You know, this is what he asked me for. And she goes, can I ask you a question? I said, absolutely. She said, who did you vote for? in the last presidential election. That's what she said. I mean, this is what people on their deathbed want to know from a pastor. And I said, well, I know I said something stupid. And I, I, I said kind of, and I go, well, who did you vote for? You know, I thought, this is what she wants to talk about. She goes, Biden. So she's I guess, sending me, I'm sending some kind of message. And I said, well, okay. And I said, but, you know, here's what I think. I think politics, we ought to, I said, I do my duty. You know, something like that, real quick. I said, you know, I don't want to dismiss this question. But I said, I'll just say this. I'm trying to do what I think I'm called to do for my, for my brother-in-law. And I said, you know, but to me, um, I do my thing. You know, I participate. But I said, you know, to me, the most important thing to me um, beyond politics is, is Jesus and who he is and how he, and for, I'm just trying to get there. And, and before she has an answer, before she has an opportunity to say anything to me, the guy behind, the voice behind the curtain, this is, this is like a Seinfeld. He says, all of a sudden this voice goes, well, because I said, I said, Jesus, and he goes, well, I don't think he'd be so happy about all the abortions in this country. I thought, this is not the conversation I thought I was going to be having. But this is, I'm, I'm giving it to you verbatim. But here's my point, guys. 
The most important question is, can you know God? It's a personal relationship. And I'm not knocking these people at all. I think they're like a lot of people. But this, at least this woman, has a half an hour with a pastor, nobody special, but a pastor, and that's the question you want to ask? Who did you vote for? Jesus invites us here in this passage, listen very carefully, to learn from him, not about him, to learn from him. You can't do that unless you're in a relationship with him. Not, listen to J.I. Packer. If you, ever read this, if you haven't read this book, it's your homework. It's your homework. One of the greatest uh, uh, books of the last uh, many decades called Knowing God. Knowing God, listen carefully, is more than knowing about him. It's a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with him with, excuse me, dealt with by him as he takes knowledge of you. Leave that quote up there. Guys, this is it. Knowing God is more than knowing about him. I hope you, of course, you need to get to know more about him. It's a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you. Come and learn of me. Right? It's a lifestyle. And being dealt with. By him, as as you grow in trust, as he takes knowledge of you. Does that describe your relationship with God? Not only what happened to you 20 years ago when I was 17, I I mean today. Is it an interplay, a give and take, where God is knowing you and revealing things to you, and then he's getting in between you and your heart and doing some business with you? Like a husband or a wife or a close friend, but exponentially more. Because he has perfect knowledge of you. Okay, and all power and all authority. It's a personal knowledge. That's what I'm talking about. Do you have it? Second, it's, can I know God? It's knowing him in the place of your need. You know, I, I don't know I, I, what a good analogy is. Maybe, maybe those of you who have very little kids, I mean, one years old, two years old, three years old, they only have one channel. I need something. Really? And Keith's looking at me, wait till they're 25, they still have that channel on, right? But the point is, that's how your kids grow when they're young. They need food, they need to uh, 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 have their diaper changed, they need um, the, the fresh air, they need a hug, okay? And I don't want to demean God, and I don't want to demean your relationship with God, but the difference between the size between you and mental intellectual capacity and everything else between you and your three-year-old and God and the smartest person in this room is exponentially different. The wisdom, the intelligence of God is beyond measure. He spoke the world into existence. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is the only way we can know God it's not like we're, we're trying to learn reading the biography of George Washington. The only way we can know God is in the place of our need. And if you're somebody, because of your pride or your wisdom or your this or that, you know, you know, I don't need a lot, you will never know God very much. That's what Jesus is saying here. I praise you, Father, that you've hit. God doesn't purposely hide things from the wise and learn like God has, you know, he's, God's got a point of view. He doesn't, the people he doesn't like. He's making a point. God loves everybody. The Apostle Paul is one of the smartest people that walked the planet in this day, and Paul got it. He's saying, listen, if you want access to me, you've got to surrender your pride. That's what's standing in your way. That's what it means. And all of us have it. Christians perhaps more than others, for all I know. It's in in knowing him. It's in knowing. 
it's in knowing him in the place of your need. Perhaps the most famous invitation to the Christian faith, at least in the words of Jesus, are right here. Right? This is one of the most famous invitations if you're a Bible. Come unto me, all you are burdened and weary. It's interesting. He doesn't say anything about sin, the salvation of sin. He doesn't say anything here about going to heaven. Now, are those things included? Of course they're included. But what I'm saying is, Jesus is trying to dig even deeper into the human need. Of course, he's, it's about the forgiveness of sins. Yes, it's about e- eternity. But Jesus, in the most famous invitation, says, listen, come unto me and find rest for your soul. Isn't that something? The word here, I mentioned it last week, it's in the same word, uh, for, for soul is psyche. Okay? Where you get the word psychology. He's not talking about rest for your body. Oh, I'm old, I can't ski anymore. He's not talking about that. He's talking about an, the inner part of who you are, your being. Right? He's talking about rest from anxious striving to be enough, from the self-validation project that most of us, Christians included, spend much of your working life um, dealing with. Regardless of what you know intellectually, you're spending, I'm spending, many of my waking hours trying to validate my existence. And Jesus is saying, you need to put it down if you really want a relationship with me, okay? Famous, famous conversation. Luke chapter 10, you know it, Martha and Mary. Jesus, you know, we forget that Jesus walked the the earth, had a zip code, you know, uh, I was gonna say didn't do his homework, he probably did. But you know, the point is, Jesus Christ walked through this life for a purpose so we could understand what it means to be human. And today he's still human if you're a Bible believer. These are things that are beyond our understanding. But he did this. And not only did he have a zip code in, in, in a, you know, a, a family and a home and, a, and he was a carpenter, etc. But according to the Bible, he had close friends. Right? And as far as, obviously there's a lot we don't know, but some of his closest friends, like you'd say, who's my close friends? Not your husband, your wife, your friends. It's a little, a couple, little couple, small family. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And they're mentioned many times in the, te- in the Bible. And they're mentioned mainly because they're close friends of Jesus. They're friends, they hung out. Okay? And he has this famous story, you all know it, or if those of you have been in church know it, the story of Martha and Mary. It's only a couple of verses at the end of Luke chapter 10. There's a point to this story. It's a very important, in this Bible, the Bible doesn't just throw things in there willy-nilly. There's a point. And you guys, some of you know exactly where I'm going because this story's been told 100,000 times. But what's the point? He comes to their house. It's probably a party. It's a party maybe for Jesus. And, and, and Martha's running around doing all the work. And Mary chooses to sit there at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach. And she's just sitting there, even though there's all these things going on. And Martha finally comes. You can tell she must have been exacerbated. She comes to Jesus. She's frustrated, right? She's not yelling at a friend or the neighbor for sugar. She's yelling at the Lord Jesus Christ, who she believes in. She's a believer. Think of her as a Christian in this context. She says, Lord, do you not care? Do you not care about what I'm dealing with right now? 
that I'm trying to do, put this thing together, and my sister is sitting here with her uh, hands in her lap, just listening to you while all these things need to be done. Now, you might say, this is a small little story. What's it doing in the Bible? It's making a point. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried. Put your own name in there, okay? Glenn, Glenn, okay? Well, put your name in there. You are worried and upset about many things. Are you? Okay? But few things are needed. And then Jesus in a flourish, actually only one thing is, he's not saying don't go to work. He's not saying don't pay your bills. He's not saying don't, you know, golf. He's not saying any of those things. But he's saying when it comes to what's really important, what really keeps you up at night, there's only one thing. Mary has chosen, so you got to choose it, what is better, and it will not be taken from her. It's a powerful statement. Jesus makes the assumption that all human beings are burdened, okay? With anxieties, fears, temptations, responsibilities, loneliness, and above all, the failure of our sins. Listen to John, the words of John Calvin. I love this. If you know the name John Calvin, great reformer. Failure makes us fit to receive God's grace. Now, whether you like him or not, or even know him or not, one of the brightest theological minds, sharp, talented. I mean, this guy could have run for president. I don't know was, but this guy says, because he understood this. Was he wise and learned? Yeah, he was wise and learned. But he said failure, in a sense, I'm not saying go try to fail, makes you fit to receive God's grace. Wow. That's a powerful statement. Because if you spend all of your life hiding standing behind, not admitting, not being vulnerable and saying, this is what it means to be a Christian. You've completely missed what the Christian life's all about. This is, you've missed it, right? And God's up there thinking, he's looking down with the kid hiding the thing behind his back going, I wish he would just get, you know, get over that, right? Come unto me, all you are burdened, burdened, weary, and I will give you true rest, true rest rest in losing our burden Jesus says listen let me tell you where you can lose your burden everyone is looking for longing for rest peace and freedom and Jesus says let me tell you where to find it it's in losing your burden at the cross and submitting to his teaching that's what the yoke is by the way it's a famous passage but it's a metaphor take my yoke upon me and what Uh, you know plant your wheat no and learn from me The yoke is a metaphor of learning the commandments, the teachings, the beauty and the wisdom of Jesus. Are you doing it? And he just uses the yoke to say it's a a relationship. You're plowing through life and you're going to get through life and you're going to learn about life, the life that is truly life. You're going to find true rest, spiritual rest from anxiety and from fear and from not being enough, when you learn how to have a personal relationship with me. Okay? It's not just simply a decision. It's not simply raising your hand. It's a walk with God. Those who feel their sin and come asking for forgiveness 
for their sin and help for their burdens, find in Jesus open arms. Now, if you were here last week, we had some baptisms. And if you were here, it's one of my favorite uh, Sundays when we do this. Now that you see people baptizing, they're just talking about they're experiencing change of life with God, God meeting them for the first time maybe. Um, but we read little testimonies and you just get an excerpt, but I get to read the longer ones or some of us do and it's one of the most richest experiences I had. And a guy was baptized not this last Sunday but last year who I sat down and talked with recently about his experience in hearing from God receiving the revelations. Name's Alex Harcola. Listen to this short video. The state of my heart before I came to Jesus, if I could sum it up in a couple words, I'd say uh, unfulfilled and hollow. I was struggling heavily with mental health issues, with depression, um, with just past hurts and struggles from growing up. Um, that were weighing on me and uh, just different issues with relationships that, that weren't flourishing and trying to uh, solve those things in unhealthy ways and vices back then that were just not suiting me and not leading me in the, in the direction that I wanted to go. I did have a church upbringing uh, growing up, but it wasn't in any way a personal relationship with God. It was more of a chore kind of in one ear and out the other growing up. So I wasn't retaining anything, I wasn't really learning anything and carrying you know, the love of the Father with me through my life. I, I had nothing, no foundation really to fall back on. So as soon as I graduated from high school, turned fully away from you know, the church altogether, I would say 95% of my friend group was not Christian. It was just these two guys. Um, and there was always something different about them. There was always a light to them that was totally different than, than my other friends. The way that they spoke, the way that they listened, the way that they had a genuine interest in my life. Uh, they, they just truly cared about me. They truly loved me. As I was growing up, I'm like, okay, it's, it's their faith. Their faith is different. And they had really awful things happen to them in their upbringing. And I was like, how are they still doing so well? Why do they seem so happy? I feel like uh, God had been tugging on my, my shirt for a while of, hey, check, you know, check this out over here, but I um, was resistant for that for a while. And I finally had kind of this undeniable pull at my heart. And I didn't know what that was back then. I didn't know that that was God. I just felt this feeling of, when you wake up in the morning, you need to reach out to your friend, Matt, and you need to go to church with them. And it was, I was like, okay. So I finally was at a, a sermon here at Browncroft, and uh, I felt deeply moved by it to the point where I was convicted that it was time for me to give my life to Christ. And I finally said, okay, God, I'm ready. And I did that and uh, I felt the Holy Spirit come over me. I was, I, was, I was moved to tears of joy and it was just this massive weight lifted off of me. I could feel right then um, that just sustained me through the day. I said, whoa, you know, that, that's, this is different. I'm not doing this on my own again. It was just this burden that I could finally offlift. The experience uh, for me of getting baptized last year I, I describe it to my friends and family as one of the happiest days of my life. I had been thinking about it for a long time and as I developed a personal relationship with uh, Jesus, I wanted to declare that publicly and I wanted to kind of draw a line in the sand of my life before and my life after. 
The way that my life perspective has changed since I've received Christ as my Savior, I would say not having to do life alone, just finally um, leaning into casting my cares and my burdens on God and finding rest in that. So I can pray to God. I can walk with God daily. I've learned through my faith journey that it's not just a Sunday morning faith. It's motivated me to want to share that with others in the same way that my friends initially did with me when they ushered me into my faith. I just feel more and more inclined to just to share that love with other people who don't know Christ that have that hopelessness that are struggling with depression or other things in their life. It doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to keep bearing all that weight yourself. There's a great guy out there named Jesus. Then he wants to do life with you. How can I know God? You need to come to him. Okay? Not once. Uh, not twice. You need to come to him. Life is a succession of burdens. We can't get away from it. But instead of offering an escape, see some people think that's what Christianity is and that's why they're not here anymore. Right? <laughs> Didn't work for me anymore. Instead of offering an escape, Jesus offers us true rest and daily help. He realizes the greatest gift he can give a tired, weary soul, which is every person who's honest, is a new way to carry life and to face responsibilities. Okay? That's what this promise is about. And we're going to sing a song or listen to a song. You can sing if you want to, but this song was written the words of this song are written based on this verse, Matthew eleven twenty eight, and it's as if God, first person, is singing this song over you. And the song is called, Come to Me. Listen to just some of the words. I am the Lord your God. I go before you now. I stand beside you. I'm all around you. Though you feel I'm far away, I'm closer than your breath. I am with you more than you know. I am your anchor in the wind and the waves. I am the steadfast, your steadfast, so don't be afraid. Though your heart and your flesh may fail you, I'm your strength. I am with you wherever you go. Come to me. So we're going to use these few minutes, guys, and we're done. And I want to challenge every person in this room, right where you sit, right? I, I'd be sh I would be uh, hard-pressed to believe that not every person in this room has a burden. Maybe your burden is your sin. You don't, you've never, you, you don't, you're not a Christian. But have, have him say, come to me and be my Savior. Maybe your burden's something else. You need God's strength in your life. Come to me. Maybe you need God's wisdom for something going on in your life. Come to me. Maybe you need um, peace in a troubling season in your life, come to me. Use these minutes, listen to these words as if God was speaking them over you. And sit, stand, pray with a friend, spend some time in prayer right where you are. Use these few minutes to have a personal relationship with God. Amen.